Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. My name is Erin Mullineau-Bailey. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the CEO and owner of Cognitive Behavior Institute. This week on The Barrier Breakdown, we are joined by David P. Eisenman. Dr. Eisenman is a professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine and the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, where he directs the Center for Public Health and Disasters and is the deputy director for the Center of Healthy Climate Solutions. He studies public health emergencies, including disasters, mass violence, climate change, COVID-19, and community resilience. So Dr. Eisenman, thank you so much for being here with us today on The Barrier Breakdown. Uh, could you tell our guests how you became interested in public, public health and then kind of talk a little bit about that intersection between wildfires and public health? Yeah, well, I didn't start out being interested in public health. When I went to medical school, which was in the late 80s, public health was kind of, uh, a uh, minor child of, of, of medicine. It wasn't uh, considered a prestigious field. And I think I was sort of influenced by that. But I, I started off um, my first job, I got introduced to the topic of torture survivors and what can doctors do for people who, are, who, are, who have been tortured, who are generally immigrants and refugees and are seeking asylum in this country. And we developed an entire clinic that was based on their needs, uh, mental health services, primary care medicine, rehabilitation, spiritual, uh, legal uh, job skills. And what happened then is I realized we were just in our clinic, you know, we set out a, a phone number and we started getting a couple referrals a week. This was in New York City. And I realized if we were getting a couple referrals a week, there was probably a whole population of people we were not reaching because you know, only the most cope, well, the people with the highest coping skills would be able to even find our phone number in the vastness of New York City to get in touch with us. So I got interested in the idea that there's populations below the kind of tip of the iceberg that we see in our clinics. And I got very interested in population health. Well, then 9-11 happened, and I um, was, as I said, a primary care doctor who now had some knowledge of the effects of political violence on populations. <clears throat> Excuse me. And suddenly I saw myself um, researching 9-11 uh, and how that was affecting people and thinking about that. There really was no theory or framework uh, beyond very specific trauma mental health care frameworks for approaching this problem. And to do to approach this problem, I needed broader frameworks. I ended up turning to the disaster literature and the disaster sociologists and sort of learning from them their frameworks and theories and thinking about 9-11 as a disaster like we now think of hurricanes and tornadoes. So that's, you know, then I started finding myself getting involved in public health then, you know, 10 years later. 
Wonderful. And it seems, I like that explanation, how you kind of, it seems you became interested, not on purpose, but through some of your experiences. So um, that's, that's very interesting. Can you talk to us a little bit about wildfires and mental health? I think that some of our listeners may not live in regions that regularly are threatened by fires. And so, you know, besides obviously the immediate danger um, that may, may uh, result from the location of being somewhere near that, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the physical and mental health threats from, from wildfires? Yeah. Well, you know, wildfires have been for many years thought of as just a problem with the fire. Now, there is just the problem with the fire that's very important. People have to evacuate. It's a very traumatizing experience. Their life is threatened. Their homes are threatened. Their communities threatened. And there's all the health consequences, the mental health consequences that your listeners know about that. And that's been well described in literature, PTSD, depression, that sort of thing. Then there's the sort of the disaster effects. Um, people are evacuated out of their homes and can't come back to their homes for weeks or months, even if they're, you know, if they're, of course, they're burnt down years later. So um, there's the effects of displacement, of having to move to a new community, live in temporary shelter. Um, your, your children now have to go to a new school. You have new challenges in getting to work. Uh, often, well, like, let me give you an example. The Paradise Fire in 2018 in California, where the campfire, where uh, the town of Paradise burnt down and 85 people died. Well, you know, the whole, several communities were affected by that. And they all had to, they're all displaced to the town of Chico. And now Chico had uh, enlarged by some tens of thousands. So everyone is now competing for the same mental health services and the same primary care providers and the same rental units. And there's all kinds of like surge effects on the community. Um, then there's the whole part of the wildfire, which is not the fire itself, but the smoke and the pollutants that come from the fire. So the fire um, is burning carbon, trees, and homes and all the artificial things that we stock in our homes, all the plastics and um, industrial products we have in our homes. And those are creating pollutants that are very bad for our physical health. They leach into the soil. They then can ruin the water in that watershed. They can get into the homes that are downwind into the fabrics. And then there's all the health effects of the smoke itself, which can be felt miles and hundreds of miles away. This is much like the industrial pollutants that come out of car emissions, in fact, maybe worse. And so there's the lung effects, the heart effects that come from that. And what I'm particularly interested in is thinking about is the mental health effects of all of this. I can understand how displacement could do that, uh, specifically as you described this surge uh, in, this, in this town. Can you speak a little bit more about the impact of, of, of that uh, uncertainty, insecurity, and then competition all coming together uh, in those areas. And, and how does that impact? What do, you, what do you see from a public health perspective in those communities? Well, you, on the one hand, communities that are accepting people into them, you know, right away, there's a lot of um, bonding together. We are going to help, you know, we're going to be strong. You know, Chico Strong was the... Um, uh, mantra down in Chico, which was the receiving community for the Paradise Fire. So in the beginning, people are very supportive, 
But over time, it gets to be a challenge because there is this competition that naturally occurs um, and uh, for resources. And no one wants to be a burden, but it becomes a challenge for all the displaced people because the community has to fit them into the schools, fit them into the sanitation system. There's now that much more sanitation going through its pipes. Um, uh, residents uh, are now having a hard time making appointments for their own mental health practitioner because practitioners are filled to the, to the brim with cases. Um, so, you know, of course, then people who have been evacuated are wanting very badly to get back into their homes. But uh, communities are also at the same time facing the pressure of they don't want to, you don't want to build right back exactly the way you are because then you're vulnerable, your house is vulnerable to burning down again in the exact same way. So there are new kinds of land use re regulations that crop up and they impede people building and getting back into their homes. And so there's that tension. Uh, there's, as I said, a lot of restoration that doesn't actually get uh, covered by insurance. So for instance, the smoke gets into people's homes. And unless you're very, very well insured, your home insurance won't clean that smoke. And so you have to figure out yourself, even if your house hasn't burned down, how are you going to clean all the fabrics because there are all these toxins that are off-gassed from your fabrics. Uh, meanwhile, your neighbor down the street is getting their home completely rebuilt, which can feel very unfair because you can't live in your home and to do it, you have to spend $10,000 of your money to, to, to get back into your house. So over time, there can be a lot of, uh, there can be some challenges and conflicts that arise. Do you see any other trends, specifically percentages of people that develop PTSD or other comorbid related mental health concerns during these type of events? Well, we do know that disaster survivors uh, develop post-traumatic mental health problems, post-traumatic depression, anxiety, PTSD, for sure. Um, over time, you know, there's been plenty of research that looks at the sort of longitudinal course. Um, and over time, it, it seems that a lot of these people do get better on their own. And there's been, you know, different sort of coping capacities uh, and resources that are brought into the whole thing that your listeners know better than I do. But of course, you know, family stressors, ability to work, um, uh, uh, financial stressors are really important to uh, determining the course of those symptoms. Access to mental health care is a real problem, especially in these kind of communities. These are, now I'm talking about rural communities. And as your listeners know, mental health is particularly sparse in rural communities. So you already have a lack of supply there. Now you have greater need. Also, you have a lot of this population's, uh, a lot of the population is underinsured. So that's more difficult to access mental health from that point of view. And lastly, also, there's sometimes a, um, obviously, we know about the stigma that occurs with mental health services. And that can be heightened in rural communities where people feel that, you know, I can pull myself up my, by my bootstraps and get through this. But in fact, they're really suffering. And so that can be really heightened in these wildfire afflicted communities. You had recently published a report on the mental health effects of 
things like you're discussing here, the smoke. And you also, uh, there was also a piece in there regarding non-traditional firefighters. Can you touch base and and fill us in on, on what those are? Right. So we had three topics that the National Academy of Sciences asked us to review around mental health and wildfires. The first one was about smoke. And what we're seeing now is weeks and months. Well, wildfire season has changed. Let's start with that. They, the wildfire season is now more months long. Uh, there are more fires occurring during it. Those fires last longer and, and burn more wood. So for instance, last summer in California, down in Los Angeles, we had six weeks of smoky skies and air quality indexes in the hazardous level from fires that were hundreds of miles away. Australia in the summer, in their summer of 2019 and 2020 had the Eastern part of it had months of smoke from the fires there where the skies were red with uh, through the filtered lens of the smoke on the, on the sun and people could not go outside. And that's the kind of experience we can think might be happening more in the future as climate change occurs is more of these chronic prolonged wildfires. So the smoke takes on a different meaning then. I felt that last summer as I was writing my report because here I was writing about the wildfire smoke and I was stuck indoors from COVID-19 as well as stuck indoors from the wildfire. Double whammy there. (laughs) Double whammy. And I realized that this was what I was reading about is that you are now uh, with smoke filled skies and and air quality indexes in the hundreds, which is hazardous. You don't wanna go outside. You don't wanna recreate and physically be physically active. You see less people, you know, outdoors is not, is not safe to socialize. You don't get that um, solace and spiritual solace that I get from going into the woods to hike. You can't do that, it's too dangerous. Other people really can't even work. People who work outdoors now can't work outdoors. Um, some businesses have to shut down if there's too much smoke in them. Some schools have to shut down if there's too much smoke in those neighborhoods. So that's the effect, this kind of chronic exposure to smoke, what does that do to our mental health? That was the question we were asking. And what did you find as a result of the research? Well, we did a systematic review of all the papers in the field, 30 years. And we found on the quantitative side, quantitative papers, very few really address the topic. They're all very acute fire oriented. So they look at smoke and say, they look at it as sort of a trauma experience. If uh, people saw smoke out the window, was it frightening? And does it was it one element that led to sort of traumatic symptoms? That's not what we're experiencing downwind 100 miles away. So that's not really relevant. We found some studies out of Indonesia that looked at chronic fires that are, have occurred there. And we saw some studies that are quantitative that showed, interestingly, that people who had more exposure to this Indonesian smoke from their wildfires had cerebral vasodilation on physiological exams that they did. 
and at the same time, more psychological and what they called psychosomatic symptoms. So we saw, found some quantitative studies that gave us some data, but really not a lot of really good level studies, not a really good um, quality quantitative studies. The, qual the qualitative studies, the anthropological studies were really interesting though. One study that I'll tell you about, the title of it was called Lost Summer. And that's where it tells you the whole story. It was a story of a Canadian towns that had been 40 days of wildfire smoke. And what did it mean to the community members during those 40 days? And they felt like they had lost their summer. And that was their time to do all the things I mentioned before and to be with each other. And they felt depressed. They've experienced more family stressors. They felt more anxiety. And it really described on a more qualitative level what I'm afraid we're all gonna be experiencing in the future as these wildfire events become more prolonged. Wow. And you had mentioned there were three things in the article. So that was the first one, um, your published article. And what were the second two? Well, the second one is called Solastalgia, which most people don't know what it means. So let me tell you what that is. Yes, please do. Solastalgia is a term coined by a philosopher named Albrecht a couple of decades ago. And it's, it means the distress that someone feels from the transformation and destruction of their landscape, of their home landscape, of their home environment. And it came from uh, writing about West Virginian coal mine, strip coal mine towns and the destruction of the land that occurred there and how it affected people spiritually. Well, we did, um, so we, we were very interested in this. And I um, did one study where after a large fire in Arizona, we went to five towns that were affected by that fire. None of them had structures that burned really, but they all had lost the forest that they were surrounded by. And when we got there, these five towns not really connected to each other said the same thing. And all people said just the same things to us, which is, I feel like I'm grieving the loss of the forest. And it sunk into me like a physician, you know, in the office feels that sadness of someone who's bereaved in bereavement in their office. I felt that sadness in these key informants that I was interviewing. And I realized they were mourning just like you would mourn someone who would loved. And, it's, and I learned then that there's a term called solastalgia that captured this idea. Well, we studied it. We did a survey of all the residents in the five towns. And we found that the higher they scored on a scale that we created of solastalgia, the higher their risk of mental health distress was on a validated scale of mental health distress. And that was true even controlling for multiple factors, including uh, family level stress and uh, financial uh, distress from the fire. So it was a very um, a powerful predictor of mental health distress almost a year later, you know, people living among this burnt out landscape were still, were really still grieving. Turns out, so we tried to review the literature on that. Turns out basically we're the only people who've done a quantitative study on that topic. And so nostalgia, wow, that's fascinating. 
And then regarding the uh, group of, of folks that you're referring as non-traditional firefighters, what can you tell us about, um, what can you tell us about them? Well, there's sort of, the, there's sort of two groups. The okay. first is your community residents. Now, you know, what happens in a lot of wildfires is people who live in the communities where the wildfire is happening are told to evacuate, but they don't. And they stay behind and they defend their home. They, they water the, the house down. Uh, and they try to protect their home and they try to protect their neighbors' homes. They in fact act like firefighters. A lot of them are of course trained in how to fight a fire. They learn over time. They may even learn from other firefighters, but they're not necessarily provided with the same support around mental health and the trauma of the wildfire fight. Data shows in professional wildfire fighters that 10 to 20% experience traumatic mental health symptoms from those experiences. And now here you have these residents who are doing the same job, but they have no employee assistance program, no clear uh, attachment to mental health services afterwards, no one looking in after them. Um, and so we really want to know what's the mental health consequences of these wildfire fighters who are community residents un and non-professional. Well, we found uh, really not a lot of literature. We found one study that um, found that reported 10% of people who had um, in this one survey been in wildfires in their community had reported staying behind and fighting the fire. This was a, a study out of the US Forest Service. Um, but we really didn't find, we found a qualitative study out of Malibu there was a big, a big fire in Malibu in 2018 called the Woolsey Fire. And this qualitative study interviewed about 60 people, most of whom had stayed behind to fight the fire, which is already an amazing thing that they easily found 60 people in, in Malibu who stayed behind to fight the fire themselves. And the authors talk about the psychological trauma among those people they interviewed. But unfortunately, the authors didn't do any mental health assessment formally. And just on sort of correspondence with them, they were very clear that they were, felt they were seeing trauma, drug addiction, PTSD among the people they interviewed, but they were unfortunate in that they didn't really do a, a formal assessment. The other topic that's non-traditional firefighters is inmates. In 10 states in this country, inmates are allowed to work on fire crews. And um, they often do the same job as the professional firefighters. And in fact, they're trained in a lot of the firefighting techniques, but they do not have the same access to mental health services. Uh, and no one is really looking to see what is their mental health consequences. Again, like I said, 10 to 20% of professional firefighters experience trauma, uh, mental health symptoms from their firefighting. We have no idea what that, what that rate is among inmate firefighters. Yeah, that would be very, very interesting to find out. Can you just share with us a little bit about, as we wrap this up, this is really fascinating and, and the research that you do in areas related to disasters is, is very fascinating. Can you tell our listeners where they could find uh, some of your research? Sure, well, our paper, I have a website for our center, the Center for Public Health and Disasters, that is www cphd.ucla.edu. 
Uh, and that has most of my papers as well as I think my bio on the UCLA website should have most of my papers. Okay. And I just have to ask with being a Californian, do you ever think about moving or do you ever find that a, a circle of your family or friends feel that this is just too stressful of an environment to live in that you could, you know, potentially lose your home one day? Is, is, is that something that, you know, folks who live in these areas, have you found is that something that they ever consider? Well, would I move? Uh, yes. That's because I'm afraid of earthquakes. Okay. <laughs> um, and the one place I would move to is Vermont because it's got the lowest risk of disasters in the country. Interesting. Um, so, but you know, it's too wonderful out here. So it's hard to think about. There too. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. I was, I just wasn't sure if, you know, that's something you talk about that trauma that people, and I, I saw a little bit of that paradise docuseries that was, that was on and just watching those people drive down the roads and it looked like the world was on fire literally. And they, you know, were gridlocked and they were stuck and, you know, I just can't imagine. I mean, like you had mentioned, you know, once you kind of experience that, if you if you do move back there again, you know, I'm sure that has to be a very traumatizing thing to always, you know, think about. And if that could happen again, I could see how that could be very impactful to folks. So, from an academic perspective, it seems like you're in the right place with the floods, yeah. earthquakes. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, unfortunately, business is booming, but that that's been my unfortunate mantra ever since I started seeing torture survivors 30 years ago. Oh. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on The Barrier Breakdown. We really appreciate all of your insight and find your research just absolutely fascinating. So thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Okay, wonderful. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into this week's episode. We hope that we, all of you will stay safe and healthy. I know I always say that, but really after this episode, I feel like that even rings, rings truer. So thanks everyone. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. Listeners can find all of our episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. For more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events, check out our website, cbicenterforeducation.com, our Facebook pages, Cognitive Behavior Institute, and CBI Center for Education, as well as our Instagram at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and our Twitter at CBI underscore Pittsburgh. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. We hope you'll tune in for another guest next week.